So um, uh, my name is Rana Kabatsnik, and I uh, was invited to come and address you know, Gil, uh, your sangha this evening, and I'm very pleased to be here. I recognize Lewis, who I've sat before, but most of you are unfamiliar faces, so it's very nice to meet you. Um, I've been practicing meditation for about 18 years, and Gil has been my teacher for as long as he has been a teacher, and I consider him a dear friend. And um, I was at the opening of the center, I guess, a year ago, January, so it's so nice to see what's going on in Palo Alto and be part of it, and I'm really happy for you <laughs> that you have the center and you have such a great teacher. Um, as, as I'm sure you all know, you're very lucky, <laughs> as I am too. Um, in March, I just returned. Oh, and I wanted to apologize. Lewis reminded me it was only a half hour sitting. I apologize. I was I'm kind of conditioned for 40 or 45 minutes. So, thank you, Lewis. And I apologize if I if I stretched anybody beyond. Um, I want to talk about tonight the experience I had living in Thailand. Um, I just got back in March. I was lucky enough to um, live there for, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, past six months. Uh, I was teaching at a university uh, in the north of Thailand, and as a result of being um, in the country, got to experience um, Asian Buddhism. And uh, I thought tonight I would be able to tell you about some of those experiences I, I have, I've had there, and I am, I'm on my way back in a few weeks to um, do a long retreat with a teacher I was very fortunate enough to have met. And the reason I want to talk about the experience is not so much just to tell you about my experience, but to join us all together in the fact that we come from um, a very long lineage. You know, we, we come from a, our, our uh, Theravadan Buddhism, which we're learning and practicing here in America, uh, is rooted in a monastic tradition. And um, I want to just begin by saying how absolutely inspiring that was to be in Thailand and to have the presence of monks you know, be so outstanding. Um, there are 400,000 monks in, Th- in Thailand. 400,000, you know, that's a lot of monks. And every morning, 400,000 monks go on bindabat, they go on alms rounds. Uh, because the Buddha, the, one of the rules is that the monks couldn't just hide themselves away in the forest and meditate and kind of be up in their own la-la land, in their, in their own heads, that they had to every day go out into the community and therefore serve as an inspiration to the villagers and um, be the recipients of generosity. So the Buddha established this beautiful circle of generosity because the villagers provide the, 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 the physical nourishment that the monks rely on, and of course the monks provide the spiritual nourishment that the villagers rely on. So it's just the most amazing sight to be in a village or a town and see either a half a dozen monks or hundreds of monks, as far as the eye could see, in some of the cities that I, that I was in. 
you know, just these okra robes, just, you know, from the most senior monks to the most junior monks who are absolutely enchantingly adorable because they're about eight or nine. And, um, you know, and of course, they're probably the hungriest and probably get the least because after all the senior people, um, uh, and some people particularly wait just to feed the young monks. Uh, it's just incredibly inspiring to see. And uh, a friend of mine was joking that in, in America, you know, we have like 400,000 psychiatrists and, and like a handful of monks, right? And, but in, in, um, in Thailand, there's 400,000 monks. And a fr- friend of mine has two brothers in her family. Two, two out of four of them are psychiatrists. And there's only about 500 psychiatrists in the whole country. So it's the exact opposite of what we have. We have, you know, a handful of monks and thousands of millions of psychiatrists, God only knows how many, and psychologists and therapists. And to me, that is such a revealing fact about the difference between living in a Buddhist culture and living in a Western culture. And I'm, and I'm not here to say what they have is better and we have is worse, because obviously, you know, there's many powerfully positive and wonderful things about the Western culture, but there's, there's just so much to learn about living in a Buddhist culture. And one of them, one of the main things, and I'm, I'm a psychologist by training, so obviously that's a, a, a bias. Um, but to go into a country where psychological thinking just isn't—it's not a value. It's not a—it's not something that people uh, spend a lot of time thinking about. They don't think about themselves so much. You know, they don't. When you go to a bookstore, the self-help section is not the most dominant section in the bookstore. Um, psychiatrists just they, they, in psychology plays a secondhand fiddle to the Dharma. And when you go to talk to a teacher, to a meditation teacher or one of the masters, you know they, they're not interested in finding out about your childhood or your background or what you do or you know how your relationships are going. You know, I mean you could you could tell them if you wanted, but really they want to know you know. Are you following the precepts? Um, where the pressure is in your nose in terms of the breath going in and out? You know, what pulls you out? You know, is it greed, anger, or delusion? And how long does it take you to get back? So it's a very you know it helps you when you go into a Buddhist country to realize that the impersonal nature of what the Buddha taught that things arise and pass away and, and they're ownerless, they're not ours. Um, there's something very powerful about being given a set of instructions and not being reinforced in terms of the things that keep us hooked into our individual personalities. And I was constantly amazed by this because, as I said, my bias being a psychologist and also being trained as a Western Buddhist um, uh, and how we here you know, are, are subtly or not so subtly uh, talking about ourselves and thinking about ourselves, whereas everything that I experienced there was was really supporting the message and the teaching of emptiness and of impersonality. That you could you have many problems and you have many hindrances and you have many defilements, but none of them are yours. None of them are yours. And so to sit around and talk about the story. You know, they look at you kind of like weird, you know, like, like what a weird thing to do. 
Because the, the, the idea of emptiness or the notion of emptiness is something everybody understands. I mean, they may not get it like a master gets it, but people, because it's a Buddhist country, uh, people understand that there are three characteristics and that things, uh, that, that dukkha, that suffering is inherent to the nature of all experience, that um, there's an unsatisfactoriness based on the fact that things arise and pass away, and ultimately, um, they don't, that your experience doesn't refer back to anyone or anything, and so they're empty of any kind of inherent meaning. Okay, things are just the way they are. So it's quite inspiring that, you know, it's, even at the university or uh, anybody that you talk to about Buddhism, practitioners or not, they understand this, at least intellectually. Of course, very few people can get it, you know, get it to the extent you know that they live it like the meditation masters do but it's it's a very beautiful thing when you talk to somebody and you might mention something sad or something difficult and they say dukkha 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 yeah i mean it's, it's understood as opposed to my problem you know it's just a support of the first noble truth there's dukkha very beautiful um one of the things I was really surprised to find, and I don't know why I was so surprised, because the people I've known who've lived in Asian countries told me this ahead of time, that um, the monks are so highly revered and so highly respected that a lot of people project that they're doing the practice for all the rest of us. And so a lot of people don't meditate. A lot, a lot of people see, you know, they give um, food to the monks or they go to the annual katina ceremony, which is how the villagers um, once a year support the monasteries and give robes and medicine and um, uh, grass mats and anything that the, and food, anything the uh, staples that the monastery might need. Um, so I was surprised to find that people's own individual practices, unlike here, you know, aren't as strong because they, they tend to project it onto the monks. So I was, whenever I went to a monastery and I established uh, to whoever it was I was talking to that I was a meditator, you know, there was always a lot of reinforcement and a lot of excitement because um, uh, it's relatively rare, and especially as a woman. Uh, it is an outstandingly sexist culture, I can tell you that. Surprising. I mean, you know, it's something I've always known or read about and stuff, but it's it, when you go there and see how highly the monks are revered and the nuns um, aren't and of course are treated are not of course are treated very differently um, tremendous gratitude arises for um, that differentiation that we have in the West I'm happy to say that my teacher that, who I met his name is Ajahn Anand um, uh, was outstandingly um, unbiased and unsexist and I think has the kind of mind um, that is so highly developed and so um, pure and radiant that I, the time I spent with him, I really never felt he was looking at me as, as, as a woman or a man or a person or anything. It was just I was somebody there with a particular set of constel, um, ideas and constellate, inner constellations and defilements and hindrances that he was going to help me let go of. And I never felt for an instant um, that I was being treated in a discriminatory way. 
And um, that was so profound for me to meet somebody at that level who, um, uh, whose genuine compassion and, and loving kindness was so powerful and so strong that it com- completely overcame you know, the divisions that we normally go by um, and the conventions that we, we find so common that we take for granted. And um, it was really one of the most moving experiences of my life because I almost couldn't trust it. You know, I was waiting for the um, uh, waiting for something to happen where I would feel kind of like the, the the marginality that so many people experience. Um, but the beauty of meeting a human being where um, who whose practice is done. You know that he doesn't need to uproot any more greed, hatred, and delusion. He's done it. It's quite, quite, you know, uh, poignant and powerful and, and really life-changing, which is why I, when he asked me to come back and spend some time in the monastery, um, I agreed to go and, as I said, will be going. Uh, and when you go to a monastery in Thailand and Asia, in Cambodia or Laos, you go 100% free. 100%. You know, you are given a place to live. You're given clothes. You wear, um, women wear mostly all white, or you can wear a white top and black skirt. Um, you're, if you need toothpaste or medicine or hairbrush or comb or whatever you need, you're given if it's there. And, of course, all the food that's donated at the monastery comes from what the monks collect on their uh, daily alms round that's also supplemented by the villagers who might come and cook things in the kitchen. And there's 100% you know, uh, unconditional support for your practice. That's how much it's valued. And um, like seeing the monks in the morning who have the trust and the faith that they will go out and receive nourishment for the day. Um, similar to that, knowing that you can go to a monastery as a man or a woman, even though you might be treated differently, you will still get that level of support. You will be given everything that you need to practice. And, and that is not discriminated upon. You, know, you, will, you will get a place to stay. You will get Most of the time you'll get clothing. Some of them ask you to bring your own and you'll get food, and you'll get medicine, and they will take care of you. And nothing is expected. Nothing is expected. It's um, the uh, notion or the practice of generosity is so deeply embedded in the system in Asia that, um, and there's so much trust that it works, and there's so much faith that there's a very, there's a very relaxed attitude. There's a there's an open-heartedness that the system will take care of itself. And um, I was moved to tears many times by that because as the generosity comes towards you in terms of the teachings and the monks and the nuns um, as living examples of what the Buddha taught, I think that there's just something natural in the heart that opens and... That, that desire to be generous in response to the generosity that comes forward. It's just a natural uh, response. There's nothing, there's nothing special. It's just what it is. And 
even in very poor villages, and Thailand's a pretty middle-class country, but of course there's many poor people in it, just like America's a very rich country and there's many poor people in it. And to see, you know, from the richest to the very poorest, and poor, meaning these poor rice farmers who may live on, you know, $10 a month or $20 a month, you know, from the richest to the poorest, everybody giving, you know, everybody giving and coming and offering um, to the monastery is just, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. And there's not a sense that the rice farmer is giving any less than somebody who gives, you know, thousands of millions of baht to help build a, a, a temple. It's not like that. It's still, it's just, it's the act of generosity, and uh, which I found so moving. When you, uh, in the morning, the first and only meal is at between 8 and 8.30, which definitely is a challenge, I could tell you. Um, and after the monks eat, uh, the women who are practicing get food, and then the villagers could participate as well. Um, but while the monks are, but right before the monks go and get in their line to, uh, the, the alms food is all placed out. They come back from with their bowls and they, it's all organized. Um, and then the monks go in order of seniority and um, uh, take the collected food and put it in their bowls. Um, every single day, at least at the monastery that I was at, every single day the precepts are offered to who's ever there to be participating in the meal offering. And it's so beautiful to see, you know, that that's, that's integrated into uh, what people experience. Uh, they're constantly reminded of restraint, of guarding the mind by not killing, you know, not taking what's, by not taking what's not given, um, by avoiding sexual misconduct, harmful speech, and intoxicants. So, um, and there's a time in the morning where villagers could also make an offering to the abbot or whoever the senior monk is. And often on someone's birthday or anniversary or the, um, the anniversary of someone's death, somebody will come. And again, some people make elaborate, beautiful platters of fruit and platters of, you know, fresh fish or whatever. And some people just come and bring a flower and offer it, make an offering and uh, pay their respects to the abbot. Very, it's so beautiful, so moving in its simplicity and it's in its regularity. Nothing special. It's what they do. It's a responsibility. The villagers feel the responsibility to the monks and of course the monks, um, because of the rules the Buddha set up, have, have, um, are very dependent on the villagers because without the villagers, they can't eat. They're not allowed to have gardens. They're not allowed to cook. Because the Buddha said you can't isolate yourself. You have to be available to people. And so another thing I was constantly aware of was um, how the abbot or senior monks are like public figures. You know, the the village kind of owns you. So if this is an emergency or there's a death or there's a a, uh, crisis... You know, it's like the Kaiser uh, emergency room. You know, everybody comes to the abbot. You know, the, it's the public. There's no difference between the public space and the private space. The monastery is just open. Um, some monasteries have uh, gates because, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of property theft in Thailand, which is very, very sad. Um, 
and so some of them, some things are locked. But for the most part, uh, the monasteries are just, you know, there's no extent. It's just an extension of the village. Some at some point, usually they're out in the forest. But there's city monasteries, which is different than our tradition. We come from the forest tradition. But um, there's no appointments. There's no uh, set schedules. There's it's just that you know that people come and look for the abbot. And they come for spiritual guidance, they come for blessings, they come for, as I said, advice. And um, uh, it's so beautiful to see that that's, that, you know, we, we do, we pay $150 an hour or something to see some psychologist or psychiatrist or social worker or whatever. They go see the abbot. They go talk to the, they go talk to the senior monks. And one time when I was there and I, I left and this car pulled up and somebody came with their sick child. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like an emergency room. People coming and going and asking for blessings and making offerings. And it's, it's a busy life. It's not so much, um, like your vision of everybody just sitting around meditating, um, and, and going between walking and sitting, which happens. Um, for sure, and that's a big part of what the the forest monks do. But their primary responsibility, you know, is to is to help people. And the, and the Buddha actually said, which I think is so beautiful. And as much as I love silence, and and I I know that many of you probably had the experience of enjoying and really being nourished by silence. But the Buddha didn't believe in in going into silence a hundred percent because he said then you can't help people. You know, as a as a um, as a spiritual practitioner, that's your responsibility, and it's quite beautiful to see when that when um, people come for your assistance, and you see that how available they are. And again, I don't speak Thai. I speak. I mean, I understand and speak Nitnoi, as they say, very little. Um, but when I had friends translating. Again, it's, you know, people come with all kinds of crises, but the advice isn't so much um, on giving guidance about um, the issue per se. It's helping people to see, you know, that there is dukkha, that whatever they're going through, it will change, and ultimately it is ownerless and not theirs. So always within the context of the Dharma. And, you know, you might think, well, I know what he's going to say, you know, so what's the point, you know? I know he's going to say, same old Four Noble Truths, you know, same old, you know, are you keeping the precepts, same old precepts. But there's something so beautiful and so powerful about somebody who has embodied the Buddha's teachings and who's living that life of restraint, and it's a hard life, no question, who says it from his or her heart. So it's not it's not just an automatic response like pushing a button and you're going to get like the Anicca <laughs> tape. It's not like that. Um, when I went down to see my teacher um, after a friend of mine uh, very sadly killed herself and I was just devastated by it, just devastated. You know that just feeling where just my heart was just ripped apart and. Um, Ajahn and I listened very compassionately, very open-heartedly. And uh, at some other point in another conversation, uh, he said very gently, very gently, 
Kaunata, which means enter emptiness. Enter emptiness. And it was so startling to me. You know what I mean? Like, I, so I, you know, he, he saw that I was holding on very stiffly to that suffering. It was so painful, you know, that I was holding it in a very rigid way. And I could just feel in that moment, not that I could enter emptiness like that, you know, I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Um, but it helped release my suffering heart to know that I didn't have to, I didn't have to own it. It's not mine anyway. So the simplicity of the teachings, especially when you don't know the language, um, is and also was a very powerful experience for me because um, Thais don't have such an elaborate language like we do. We have so many words for so many things. One of the things that I really loved and because you pick up these basic expressions, this one expression, well, it's, it, it basically means I understand, cow jai. And literally it means cow means enter, and jai is heart. So when you say somebody cow jai ka, that's what a woman would say, ka for woman, cup for men, cow jai ka, it entered the heart. It's very beautiful, you know. Um, that's, that's, so it's not an intellectual understanding when someone says cow jai. It's, it's, it means it, entered, it enters the heart. And jai is a very f- f- common word. It's used all the time. If somebody is angry, they say jai ron, means you have a hot heart. If somebody is, um, uh, if someone's called uh, jai yen, it's a cold heart, kind of cool. And if you're, if you're getting kind of all hot and bothered, they'll say jai yen yen, like cool down, cool down your heart. Very beautiful. Or you're in a store or a restaurant and you're looking for something, and very, very gently, someone would say, you know, Tom Jai, Tom Jai. All these people were saying that to me. I said to my friend, what is that? It means follow your heart. So you're in a restaurant, some, a waitress or somebody was at Tom Jai, follow your heart. You're in a store, follow your heart. Very beautiful, very simple. They don't have pronouns, which is also very interesting considering, you know, it's, uh, it's a culture that, that um, asks people to consider the empty nature of things. The more we say I and me and mine and ours, right, we're supporting that, that illusion. But there you, there's words for I and you, but they're not, very, they're not used very much. It's kind of understood. If you say um, cow jai, it just means entered the heart. You don't say I and it, it entered my heart. So again, the impersonality is built into the language, into the culture. Um, At one time, I, I was feeling very uh, frustrated with the job I had. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was a monk, uh, who's Australian. And uh, he was saying that advice often that is given at the monastery for people who are having a hard time, again, is not to get into the, the, the storyline of what the difficulty was, but oftentimes you're just reminded to follow the five precepts or follow eight precepts. And... Uh, um, I was so outstandingly moved by the fact that most of the culture, even though it's a pretty weird culture, because it has such extremes of this the highest level of virtue, you know, in, in, in monasticism, and then there's child prostitution and heavy-duty drug trafficking and heavy-duty AIDS population. But nevertheless, with those two extremes, 
um, visible everywhere. Uh, everybody knows what the five precepts are. Everybody knows. And uh, I don't know, maybe people do know what the Ten Commandments are. I don't think I could probably get all ten. I probably could, but um, but everybody knows what the five precepts are. And uh, that's really nice. I mean, and to be reminded without having to go through them all. You know what I mean? Just whatever your problem is, you know, recommit to following the precepts. It's a beautiful piece of advice. And again, impersonal. Not related to what my issues are and my problems and my struggling and my, you know, because we can always fine-tune the precepts. We can always fine-tune them. Or um, see them in terms of uh, where, in the, where, where in the first three noble truths this falls, the issue falls, and then kind of pick your path, pick what you want to do in terms of the solution, in terms of the um, prescription that's going to make you better, um, which are the, the factors of the Eightfold Path. Very beautiful. So it's so integrated, and people know, and people know what you're talking about. Um, one of the things that Gill has said many times in many Dharma talks that I've heard him give is how America uh, needs to become more, more Buddhist kind of and less American. And I think this is one of the ways that this could be accomplished. That um, the, I think what he, what he means, and I've talked to him a little bit about this, is that somehow in our country... We're so busy on being individuals, and we're so busy having our own opinions, and we're so busy um, trying to count, right? And uh, I think in in a more in a Buddhist culture, not a more Buddhist culture, but in some in cultures that really um, have Buddhism as their primary religion, the the teachings are first, you know, and our our relationship to them is our responsibility. Our opinions about them really don't matter, you know. They don't really matter, and people aren't so interested in your opinions. That was the other thing that really surprised me as a teacher. I've taught in many universities here, and I guess I've just gotten used to everybody having their own opinion. They like this assignment, they don't like this assignment. Could they do the assignment differently? Could they hand it in another time? I mean, everybody's arguing with you about something or other when you teach here. As I said, I've taught at many universities. Now, I'm not saying this is better or worse, but I was shocked, shocked at whatever I said people did. And it wasn't such blind obedience. I mean, you could say on the one hand, maybe it was, I don't know. But I gathered after living there for a number of months that um, people just aren't used to giving their opinions, whether they like it or not, or whether they want to do it or not. You know, it's not, it's not reinforced like it is here, you know, um, uh, you're just not asked what your opinion is very often. You know, uh, the most common question I was asked about in terms of my opinion was, what do I think of Thai food? People ask me that all the time. And the other trick question was, what do I think of the king? And both answers, by the way, you have to just give outstandingly positive, you know, resoundingly, uh, exceptionally high praise to the food and the king. Otherwise, people look at you like really weird. Um, but as I said, people's uh, sitting around and talking about what you think about something is not so much something that people do all the time. They may talk about a topic, but it's not so much my opinion about the topic. That, that was probably the most surprising thing to me because I think that coming from an individual culture like America, 
um, where people's opinions are so valued that nothing gets done a lot of times. You're just like in the standstill because everybody has an opinion. Um, it was very surpri- It was very liberating not to talk about my opinions. Actually, I really liked it uh, because it's tiring having opinions. It's one of the things that that the Buddha tells us to let go of. You know, it's part of self-view. You know, fixed views and opinions, and uh, and we have opinions about everything. You know, we can have opinions about air. You know, about you know the most insignificant things. We can come up with an opinion about it, and. Uh, to be living around people who don't really care about your opinions. It's really, it's eye-opening. It's really eye-opening, and I loved it. Um, it's one of the things I noticed when I came back about here. came back, and um, I listened to more opinions, and it was, uh, and to the extent that I, I was and continued to try to be able, um, to try to really see it as a form of suffering, my own opinions and the opinions of others. And uh, to really try to use it as a teaching that fixed views and opinions about who's right and who's wrong, or what's the best or what's the worst, um, and these kind of polar ways we tend to think that support the self and just create suffering um, really deserves a lot of compassion because it's so conditioned in our minds. And so it's not something to judge, and I really try to be as gentle and as kind as I can to it. And just to really see how how we constrict ourselves, and I constrict myself around that. And um, one of the things I'm really looking forward to, in going back, is um, not talking about my opinions, because <laughs> I know no, nobody's going to care. <laughs> nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to understand me anyway. So <laughs> that helps when no, nobody's going to understand your opinions, and then they wouldn't even care if they did. Um, because I did enjoy that being a tremendous liberation and tremendous teaching for, for me and seeing how, uh, how much we have to learn in the West and hoping and praying <laughs> and on my knees that uh, that's something that I could work on within myself um, to help end suffering. And as I said, it, there's a tremendous paradox and irony that I saw in the culture because there is this beautiful sense of restraint among uh, uh, many of the people I met in terms of uh, following the precepts and embodying the dignity that comes from uh, that restraint. And then, as I said, this, this culture that has, uh, I think, one of the highest AIDS populations in the world um, we actually went uh, to a funeral of one of the, my colleagues at the university whose 33-year-old sister died of AIDS and she left an orphan. Her husband had infected her. He had been with a prostitute and came home and slept with his wife and she was, he died and then she was infected and then she died. And it's very, very common all over. We, I was teaching at a university, but my husband and I were also uh, taught some nurses at a hospital in the town that we were living in, and we asked as an English exercise, what's the biggest problem you face? And it was so sad to hear, you know, AIDS and uh, young girls being sent to Bangkok and to the major cities throughout Thailand um, at 12, 13, 14 years old to become prostitutes and bring money back to the village um, and then contracting AIDS and then spreading it all over. And we were in, you know, a, a town, wasn't big, 
but it was devastated by AIDS. Um, so the child prostitution industry is enormous. Uh, there's also a big drug uh, drug industry and trade and problem with yaba, which is I think like a form of ecstasy. And unlike marijuana and heroin, which were huge, huge um, productions in Southeast Asia, and you know, millions and millions of dollars were made from those productions, where you could see them from airplanes and helicopters. Yabas manufactured in labs that are, of course, invisible and have really infiltrated the country um, to a pretty miserable degree. And uh, there's always articles in the paper about people, you know, having nervous breakdowns and um, going crazy and uh, having people give elephants yaba to keep them awake and rice farmers using yaba so they can work harder at night. And then, of course, the teenagers who use it just for um, the the sociability or the, the sensuality of it. Um, and it's so sad, you know, that it's um, elephants getting it, you know, so they can work harder in terms of uh, logging. Uh, and it's so much part of the culture. You know, everybody everybody knows what it is and everybody knows that, you know, people who've been affected by it. And um, because I'm a psychologist, uh, a friend, my friends, one of the brothers, who I told you, two, two out of the 400 psychiatrists in Thailand are my friend's brothers. One of them runs a psychiatric hospital in Chiang Mai. And um, he asked me if I'd be available at some point if, you know, cause if these whacked out Americans or Westerners came in on Yaba. Would I be would I be able to help them and talk to them? He never he never called me in the time I was there. Um, they usually don't go to the psychiatric hospitals. They usually just go to the regular hospitals. But uh, I thought, how sad, you know, how sad that this drug these drugs are so available and, um, of course, undermine and ruin. Um, any culture, never mind a, a Buddhist culture where in, intoxicants that cloud the mind are, you know, is, is the free, and restraining from them is considered the free, is the, is the fifth precept and so important if you're trying to train your mind and to see that, and to understand from reading the papers and talking to people, the little I can understand because their English level is awful, <laughs> but the little I can understand, um, listening to people talk about how um, so many people have been miserably impacted by that drug and how it's getting easier uh, to get and cheaper because it's, there's a competitive marketplace. So there's AIDS, there's, there's the child prostitution, and there, is, um, uh, there's, there, are, there are drugs. That's the kind of dark side underbelly. Uh, but I just can't say enough that the context of the country where you see monks everywhere, you know, monks are just part of the natural landscape, bus stations and on the subway and um, in the villages and the towns, they're just, they're just there. That these are, you know, again, living examples of what the Buddha taught. It's just so inspiring. I mean, when I sadly think that half the priests we know are in jail, I mean, not that we know personally, but, you know, in our country, the clergy... Is in such dis, dis, what's it, disrepair, dis, disrespect, dis, dis, whatever. Um, and there are problems with monks. There are definitely, you read sad articles, um, 
and you see some monks smoking, and you see some monks carrying money. But the forest monks, the forest monks, Ajahn Jimnian will be here Saturday, who's a forest monk, who wear the okra robes versus what I call the Kool-Aid robes, these very shocking uh, um, orange robes. Uh, have a very uh, the, the city monks with the orange robes are very different than the forest monks in the okra robes. And the forest monks really have, knock on wood, uh, been able to maintain a pretty uh, extraordinary sense of purity and virtue in the country. It's not flawless, nothing is. Um, but you don't see forest monks handling money. You don't see them eating after after 12 noon, which is the cutoff point for eating solid food. And um, you see them maintaining um, and embodying the precepts, and it's it's very inspiring, and people are incredibly um, respectful of that. And when I did see monks, and again, not the forest ones, but the city monks, uh, eating ice cream or handling money, uh, as Buddhists, you know, we, we feel sad. You know, it's sad when, when someone's visibly breaking the precepts um, that the Buddha laid down 25 or 2,600 years ago. And, um, you know, you feel somehow it, it tarnishes all of us when that happens. And, of course, that reflection is can be said about when anybody lies or steals or anything, even though it may not be as visible as a monk handling money, when any of us break a precept, you know, it tarnishes all of us. And um, because uh, we understand the truth of interdependence, that there really is no separation. So when the monks maintain that kind of virtue, you know, you feel supported by it. And similarly, when they don't, you feel diminished by it, which is the same of why, we, why there's a sangha. You know, the sangha is the third jewel, the triple gem. Why is there a sangha? Because we're here to support each other. And so anything that we do that's virtuous and meritorious elevates us all. And anything that we do that's unvirtuous or unmeritorious you know, diminishes us all. And I could see that very clearly um, f- with a monk, because monks are you know, robed. Um, we're not, but we still have that invisible connection because we've all made that commitment as, as practitioners to wake up and uh, use the the um, the precepts as the foundation of our morality, which is the foundation of happiness. Um, I guess the last thing I want to say is that I say this is from a psychological point of view that I learned so much from um, uh, following the guidance of, of a teacher there and feeling fortunate enough to meet a teacher that uh, I just want to say that I think we're so extraordinarily lucky. You know, the Buddha said just to be born a human being is extraordinary and then to be born a, a human being who meets, encounters Buddhism is lucky. And uh, I guess I just feel that more strongly even, even although I felt it very strong before I left, I feel it even stronger now 
that um, the vehicle and the tools that we've been given to create the causes of happening uh, of happiness and the tools um, that we see that we know um, or the the skills or the un- the lack of skillfulness that we know are the causes of suffering. You know, just those two teachings that the Buddha taught. You know, these are the things that you do that make you happy. These are the things that you do that make you unhappy. I mean, this is incredible that that we're, we're you know that he tells us. You know, here's the map. This is what you have to do to follow. This is going to make you happy. This is going to make you unhappy. Um, how lucky we are. And I know everybody knows that. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard before. I'm just saying it from my own point of view that was made all the more outstanding um, because the, the tradition is so vibrant and alive in Thailand. And here here we're just kind of starting. We're in the We're in the baby phase, you know, um, and how lucky we are to know uh, and to encounter the teachings and to use them as the anchor for our lives, which are very precious and, you know, are made all the more strong and virtuous by uh, the practice of Buddhism. And to meet teachers whose practice is honestly done, you know, they've they've penetrated the nature of reality uh, and understand the nature of the mind and heart. Uh, you know, as I said, change, you know, it just changed me. It changed me on a very deep level. Uh, because you see what the fruition of practice is. You feel the metta. You feel the metta field of these masters. You feel their infinite compassion for all beings. And their genuine hope, their genuine prayer... You know, that we find the causes of happiness and we avoid the causes of unhappiness. And um, how beautiful, how simple, how beautiful, how simple yet so hard. You know, the, the, Tao, the Tao Te Ching said, these teachings are easy, but following them is very difficult. But at least one part's easy. <laughs> teachings are easy, but following them are difficult. So... Um, I'm filled with a lot of gratitude, filled with a lot of excitement about returning, um, feel, filled with a lot of inspiration that um, of what we're doing in America, what Gil is doing here in, in uh, Redwood City with everybody here, and that every breath we take that's mindful, every step we take that's mindful, every action we take that is, is mindful, you know, helps liberate, you know, uh, all beings everywhere, and to see living examples of that, um, it's a beautiful uh, reinforcement and reminder of, of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Especially uh, now in these very troubled times on every level, um, to be committed to the practice and to know uh, and to know uh, that the liberating the heart is possible. You know, this tremendous honor is also a tremendous responsibility. It's like there's no going back. You know, you can't. Once you know the causes of suffering and the causes of of uh, happiness, it's not like you, it's it's hard to forget. So um, may, may whatever merit that accumulates from this talk be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you. <coughs> Are there any questions? Yes. 
Sure. Um, the first precept is to, uh, you, we undertake the, pre, the precept to um, res, uh, to respect all living all living things, beings, and to refrain from killing. So it's we refrain from taking any form of life, from the smallest insects to you know human beings. Um, the second precept is to uh, on, to to only take what's given, and so to not steal. Set, set, set in the positive is to only only take what's given, and not take what's not given. The third is to avoid sexual misconduct, um, and that means usually a, a, adultery or kind of misuse of sexuality, um, unskillful exploitation. Um, in relationships, whether married or not. Um, the fourth precept is to uh, avoid false and harmful speech. So uh, lying, exaggerating, uh, slander, or swearing, uh, ugly speech. And the fifth precepts, uh, precept is to avoid... In taking intoxication, intoxicants that cloud the mind. So, um, even to the extent of that lovely glass of wine or ice cold beer or whatever that the Buddha said, don't do it, or obviously illegal substances, because uh, our goal, or what we're trying to attain, is clarity of mind. So we try to avoid things that that cloud the mind unnecessarily. The Buddha said we have enough clouds in our mind through greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> we don't need to do it. By the way, I, I, I used to love my glass of wine, and certainly I used to love an ice-cold beer. And I stopped uh, drinking because I, you know, for my practice sake. And um, it's not that I don't miss it, I do. But I, you know, I'm really, I really enjoy the restraint of saying it's... What's a glass of wine compared to you know, really maintaining the precept? That's so much more nourishing and satisfying to me. Even though, believe me, I loved I loved having my wine and and, and um, occasionally miss it. Uh, but it's it's so in, it's, it's an easy thing to do for me compared to the the benefit I get from not doing it. You know, it's such a it's um, I think to me it's the least I can do. You know, and um, as I said, I, 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 on the whole, I don't miss it. And when I do, it's easy to get myself straightened out by saying, why cloud the mind? It's clouded enough. So those are the five main precepts. When I go to Thailand, I also follow three others, which are to um, avoid wearing any kind of jewelry or things that adorn the body, no makeup, uh, I think I'm allowed to wear, I think I can have a watch and a wedding band. But you're not supposed to wear necklaces and um, um, perfume, scents. Anything to adorn the body is, is against, uh, I think this, it's either the 6th, 7th, or 8th precept. It, and the other one is um, to not eat after noon. I know, that's hard. That's really hard. Um, but since 
you're, there's allowables, which include peculiar things like chocolate, which ends up in a puddle because it's about 10,000 degrees there. <laughs> it's a tropical country. You're allowed chocolate. You're allowed ginger. So there's all kinds of ginger um, candies. And you're allowed um, um, cheese. Yeah, peculiar things. And water and tea and sugar and soy milk, not regular milk. And then the other precept is not to uh, lie on anything that's high and luxurious, which for somebody like me who loves a comfortable bed, it's not easy to be on the grass mat floor. I, I take a little um, kind of one of the surma rests with me uh, when I go to the monastery. But uh, the idea is to not get lost in the delusion of comfort, you know, because it you tend to sleep. You tend to let lie around in bed a little longer if it, the more comfortable it is. What about the not? What's the reason for not being able to do? And what's the rationale um, for that? I th- it's a form of restraint. It's a form of restraint that, um, and and it's also an acknowledgement that there, uh, that physical nourishment is is an important component of keeping the body alive but re- really keeps your heart going is, is spiritual nourishment and practice and so food is given less important is considered just something that nourishes your body for your practice and uh, it's a hard one I struggle with it a lot because I get hungry or my mind gets hungry because I'm, I'm working on my conditioning of three meals a day and wanting, 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 wanting. So it's hard. I was curious also about the eight. And strangely enough, I had a different list. And so I wondered if you could what was that? the differences. Well, the eating, mm-hmm. I think, is, is common to them. But I had heard two others rather than about adornment, mm-hmm. about not um, indulging in music or theater right. or any of those things. I, I think so, you know, and I don't want to. Um, uh, I think that is one. That is definitely one of them that you don't go to the movies and you don't listen to rock and roll. And the other one I thought was something about not. Um, oh, how is it? Not indulging in in oversleeping, in sleepy states. Right. Well, that's that's part of that's part of sleeping on. Oh, that's part of. Yeah, that's part of sleeping on not not sleeping on a high bed. Yeah. Where in Thailand did you practice? Did you practice with the forest monks or in the city? I practiced in the forest with in, in the forest. Uh, I I had met a monk at a Bayagiri, the monastery up in uh, Redwood Valley, who's Australian, and I got in touch with him, and uh, I went to. His, the monastery he was staying at, and that's where I met Ajahn Anand, the teacher I'm going to be uh, going to see and practice with, and which was in the forest. This particular monastery is in southern Thailand. I was living in northern Thailand, and I also practiced in a forest monastery near, near, quite near the university I was teaching at. So. Any other questions? You know, for some reason, I thought we ended at 9.30. I guess I, did, I didn't read my... I, I apologize for not being very mindful um, about uh, the, the times, and I hope ask for your forgiveness. So, And I hope you'll come to see Ajahn Jumnian on Saturdays 
very special forest monk who comes to the States once a year, and it's really a great blessing that he'll be here on Saturday. So, thank you very much. May, may we all be happy. <laughs>